0: But anyway, there there is that that sort of general meme that floats around through the reptile community. I think it's getting a little bit better, but we still see it quite often where people think that vets really don't know anything. So as far as you're concerned, where do you think that myth came from?
1: I think there's probably a combination of things. You know, one is we are still learning a lot about reptile medicine. I mean, if you look at, if you wrote a book about reptile medicine, which people have, you've got, you can probably just have a book, whereas if you write a book about, you know, dog medicine, I mean, you're going to fill a room with it. There's just so much more that we know about other species. Um, unfortunately, we are seeing more, you know, of the the ball pythons with respiratory disease and a lot of them, you know, I'm recommending tests for nitivirus and they're coming back positive. So that's one thing that's definitely scary that we're seeing more of. Um, I saw a king snake that had eaten his tail and was starting to digest himself.
0: Oh my that's gosh.
1: Probably, that's probably the weirdest one.
0: <laughs> Welcome to episode number 103 of the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Now, before we get any further, I just need to say something real quick. If you hear an annoying vibration or a buzz or a rumbling sound through this intro, they are paving the road just outside my building right now. There's a grader going back and forth, and it is literally shaking my entire building including the enclosures and they're rattling around. I'm basically yelling to get over that sound right now. I can't tell if it's being picked up on the microphone until after I edit it, so just in case, if you do hear an annoying, annoying rumble, then I apologize, it will not be present in the episode. It's only gonna be present during the intro and the outro. Okay, so having said that, joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Catherine Love, who is a recent veterinary grad out of Indiana. Dr Love specializes in reptiles and we discuss several different aspects here. First we discuss the schooling of reptile vets, what it means to become a reptile specialist on the veterinary side. We discuss that sometimes contentious relationship that keepers have with vets, especially you see online a lot of people saying don't go to your reptile vet or don't take your reptiles to vets. They never know what they're talking about and you're end up going you're going to hurt yourself or hurt your animal by taking them there. We discuss where that myth came from and how to get around that myth. Dr. Love gives us a quick rundown of sort of the day-to-day life in the clinic. What are the common ailments she sees patients coming in with? We talk about Nidovirus, a little bit about Crypto. We discuss a stint that she did in Australia for a rotation, which was really fascinating. And Dr. Love also lets us know how she stays up to date with the forever evolving reptile husbandry information. As you know, we're constantly pushing the envelope, constantly advancing, and it's actually really important that veterinarians stay on top of that as well, so she kind of walks us through that. This is a great episode for those who are nervous to approach their vet or are unsure of how to find a good vet, and also if you're somebody that's sitting at home and you think you might want to go into veterinary school, this is a great episode to sort of give you a little bit of outline on how that might look and how you can go about doing that. If you're looking for more information on this episode or any of the links discussed in this episode or any other episode, Episode that has been recorded, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. If you'd like to join us on Patreon, head to patreon.com slash animalsathome. There you'll have early access to the episodes as well as the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. And we also do Zoom hangouts every four to five weeks with my friend Liam over at Reptiles and Research YouTube channel. We bring in some of his listeners, some of my listeners, and we hang out on Zoom. And we also sometimes bring in a special guest. Last week, we brought in Paul from Custom Reptile Habitats, and he talked to us all about the reptile enclosure business, which was a really fascinating conversation. If that is on YouTube, but you have to be a patron to access it. So, or a patron to access it. So, if you are interested in listening to that or being involved in any of those Zoom chats in the future, make sure you sign up there. And thank you very much. Speaking of Paul, to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. You can find affiliate links in both the YouTube description as well as on the show notes. Let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. Dr. Love, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. It's always great to have another vet on the podcast and we're going to get into the conversation about reptile vets later because you know, this is one of those topics where we probably don't utilize them enough and there's myths surrounding reptile vets as well. So, but before we do that, I know you have, we were just talking before off air, you have a a few reptiles behind you. How long have you been into herpetoculture? Is this something that started as as a kid or did you get into keeping reptiles once you got into vet school?
1: I think I have a pretty similar story to a lot of the people you have on that, you know, I was out catching toads and snakes and and all that. Um, I vaguely remember we had newts and that you know, or I don't remember what their names were, Uh, but when I was in middle school, my parents finally let me get a bearded dragon and I honestly did not take good care of her looking back on it. I thought I was so great, but, you know, I had the Kelsey sand and kind of the typical beginner mistakes. Um, so I don't feel like I really got into, you know, the evidence-based keeping until until vet school. I got my ball python uh, in undergrad and kind of just was realizing I wasn't doing right by him. And then I started finding, you know, like the advancing herpetological husbandry and realizing, wow, husbandry is really interesting. And that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole.
0: Were you, was being a vet always part of your, was that your goal from just a child or did that kind of morph along the way?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, some of my earliest memories of, you know, playing with friends, we had the stuffed animals that we were bandaging and Mm -hmm. taking care of. Um, I think I had a little stuffed dog that I set on top of a, of a light and it got burned and I I had to put a bandage on it. And and that was like, Oh, this is what I want to do. And of course, when you grow up, you realize it's not quite that uh, luxurious, but I can't imagine doing anything else.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, uh... Because it's, it's fascinating. So many kids have the goal of being a vet. And then when yeah. you realize what it's like, it's like, yeah, I actually don't want to do that. It's it's not the job that it's not bandaging up stuffed animals. You know, when, yeah. when we're kids, it seems so good. But from the very beginning, you've always wanted to be it. And was there was there ever a point where you thought maybe you wouldn't want to be a vet? Because, you know, A, the schooling is incredibly difficult. It's hard to get into school. I don't know what it's like where you are, but here in Canada, it's very difficult to get into vet school. I'm sure it's the same for you. And -hmm. then the school's challenging. And then the job itself is challenging. So was there any a part where you're sort of wavering?
1: Yeah. When I got old enough to realize that, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to, you know, euthanize animals and there's gonna be blood and surgery. So maybe around like the early teen years, I was wondering if I really wanted to do that, but kind of came back around to it. And really since late high school, it just, there was nothing else that I really could imagine doing. I mean, certainly sometimes when I was in vet school and you have the 10 exams coming up, you're like, is this really worth it? But (laughs) other than that, I never really wavered.
0: So when you went into vet school, as you said, you you got your ball python in undergrad, so you must have had your your, peak of, or your interest in husbandry was starting to, to peak again, and and were you already thinking you would want to tilt towards reptiles as far as being a vet goes, or were you kind of more broad at that point?
1: So funny enough, I was actually really interested in farm animals. I went into vet school saying, I will not do any small animal medicine. I don't like it. I want to work with um, farm animals and maybe get into some kind of wildlife conservation. And I mean, I, I liked... I obviously I liked reptiles. I had a snake and I wasn't opposed to it, but I just really loved being out on the farm. And it wasn't really until um, my second year, I went to an exotics conference and just by chance ended up going to a lecture on reptile medicine and surgery. And it was like something clicked in my brain. I was like, oh, that's that's what I wanna do. I like, I, I wanna do that. Can I specialize in that? And from there, it's just been like kind of a nonstop spiral into reptile medicine since then.
0: Cause that is a, quite a difference between going into farm animals. And <laughs> I, I, I'm always appre- impressed by farm animals because they have to deal with animals that can really, really hurt you. It's always yeah. amazing. that, And they seem so like brave grabbing horses by the feet and whatnot. But that is quite a shift to go yeah. from one to the other. So w- what was it about it? The, was there anything in particular or was just that deep fascination was already there? So you, you just swelled at that, at that conference?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest that by that point, I was kind of realizing like, oh man, I really do not like working with horses as much as I thought. I like riding them, but horse people are, if you've ever been around horse people, anyone will, will know what I mean by horse people. And it's just, was realizing that it wasn't really for me. And I was questioning what exactly do I want to do? And I was kind of going back around to, well, I really like reptiles and exotics. Let's just go to some conferences and. I don't think I have a really specific thing that caught my interest. There was just all these pictures of these, you know, not even anything special, just bearded dragons and and corn snakes and things. And it's like, oh, my gosh, like, of course, you can do surgery on them. It just never occurred to me that you could specialize it. And it just was something that clicked in my brain. I don't have a great reason other than I just really thought it was cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you if someone is listening to this and they are thinking of going into vet school or want to be a vet is there any advice that you have for them that that you wish you knew before you went down that path?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, you know, think really hard about it. You know, I I love what I do, but I see a lot of my friends and colleagues burning out. I see a lot of mental health issues. So just be really sure that it's what you want to do. Spend a lot of time shadowing different types of vets, not just a small animal vet. Get experience, even if you don't think you want to work with that species, you know, just learn as much as you can. Be around as many types of vets and research and animals and everything that you can to get the experience and make sure that you really want to go into this.
0: Yeah, I've heard the mental health issue about vets before. Is that Do you think that's just the stress of the job or the, where, where does it mostly come from?
1: I don't think they really know. Part of it is, you know, at least in the US, the debt is so bad. I mean, most of us are 250, 300,000 plus, and we don't make nearly that much. I mean, really not even close. So just paying people back... People always think calories, vets are making yeah. tons of
0: money, but it's not, it's not quite like that.
1: Right. And I don't know where that comes from because we just, we really don't. Um, But that's part of it, part of it is, you know, long hours, we're expected to basically do the job of a bunch of human specialists, we're physicians, we're, you know, we're doing surgery, we're doing specialty work. Um, Part of it is that those of us that have mental health issues that are anxiety prone are the ones that tend to gravitate towards animals and are detail oriented. And um, part of it is, you know, just we we end suffering. And so I think without getting too much into, you know, a sensitive topic, I think a lot of us in our mind, when we're suffering, we, we tend to go in a certain direction that ultimately ends very sadly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the challenging part of, of that job for sure. And I, I know I've talked to other vets as well. And partly it's a challenge because you have people bringing in their pets and the surgeries and the treatments are not cheap. Mm -hmm. But that's part, it's not, and I don't, I I don't say that as like, it should be more inexpensive you're paying for what you get, but it is an expensive amount of things you have to go through medication, surgery and whatnot. And a lot of times people don't want to pay it or, or sort of look down on vets. Why are you asking me to pay this bill to save my pet? Like, do you, do you experience that as well?
1: All the time? Um, definitely, you know, I, whether for better or for worse, I'm a lot, I'm on a lot of social media with, you know animal owners other vets keepers all that stuff so i see it a lot and i've been fortunate i i mean i've had owners get mad at me and say some not so nice things I've, I've fortunately never experienced you know someone saying that you're just in it for the money but i've had people get mad about prices and i think just part of it is people don't really know how much equivalent things cost for humans you know i think about we can spay a dog for under 500 dollars, and if you got the same procedure in a human you're talking ten thousand plus, mm. and people just they have insurance so they don't realize that
0: yeah yeah that that's a big problem especially in canada with the way our healthcare system is nobody has any idea how much just the average doctor appointment is for example because you don't see it yeah. you do not see a bill you would have i don't even know what it would be i have absolutely no idea yeah. so then you go to the vet and you see sort of the private side of it and you go wow i it, it is it is tough but you know every <laughs> a vet's not going to do a surgery for free it has to happen that's just the way it is
1: yeah, I think there was some study they told us about in the school, the average US vet gives away like $60,000 in free services a year, and it was more for Canadian vets. So it's, we do tend to undervalue our, ourselves, and we don't always charge for our time appropriately. So it's, it's sad, but kind of funny when people get mad at us about, you know, oh, you're in this for the money when in reality, we just we give away so much and we shouldn't. But, you know, ultimately nobody does this to get rich. We want to help animals. So sometimes we cut corners and prices that maybe our bosses wouldn't be happy about. But in the mm-hmm. end, it's, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. Oh, I was I just lost my train of thought. It'll, it'll come back to me. I'll, I'll ask you another question. And if I do think of it, it'll jump back in. But as as far as your reptile specific training goes with as a vet, because I'm sure that the education starts quite broad and then it tapers down as you begin to specialize. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what you've specifically had to do as a vet or through vet school for a reptile related, or or does most of that stuff happen afterwards?
1: Sure. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good thing to talk about because I know I see on, you know, different social media pages that people like, oh, vets don't learn anything about reptiles. And Mm -hmm. it's definitely variable. You know, I went to a school that did not have an exotics program, but I still managed to get a lot of exotics experience. Whereas if you go to, you know, one of the big exotics wildlife schools, you're probably going to have reptile lectures, classes, rotations. So there's definitely some variability. But for me, I mean, we had some basic exotics classes, and then once I realized that, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do. Um, there's a lot of usually schools have have grants and things for students to go to conferences. So I was going to a lot of the exotics conferences in school, um, and then you know most of us there's clubs. So I was the herpetile chair for our exotics club. So organizing labs and getting experience um, that way a lot of times we will shadow or work at clinics. And then once you get into usually third and fourth year at most schools, you can start kind of tailoring things. So you know, we had more specific exotics electives. And then for my my rotations, which was our fourth year, all of my externships, so offsite um, experiences were all exotics. And I tried to pick places that saw a lot of reptiles, I actually went to a clinic in Australia, which was right when COVID started happening. So I kind of got stuck there, but you know, not too bad of a place to be stuck.
0: Yeah. That's so you, you went there in 2020 at the beginning of 2020, I guess. I was there
1: in March. Um, I, yeah, I went in when I went, everyone was still kind of like, okay, it's not that big a deal. No one knows how to wear a mask correctly. And Mm -hmm. then halfway through, it was like, Oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to get home. So, you know, I, I mostly got to finish it. I had to leave a couple days early to make sure I got back, but I still got a ton of really cool reptile experience because they, you know, they sell wildlife. So there's just this whole back room with, you know, wild bearded dragons and carpet pythons and and, and blue tongue skinks and everything. So a lot of times students kind of get to take the lead on that. And that's another, I guess, another thing I did is I did a lot of like wildlife rehab stuff. And that's a really good way to get, especially around here, turtles getting hit by cars. We see that constantly. So I got a lot of experience with that too.
0: So this question might sound callous, but do do they give these, allow the students to work with the wildlife rehab just in case, you know, it's more of like a safe place to practice because if something goes wrong, there's no pet associated with it. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, that's functionally it. There's, you know, less, there's no owner and, you know, I don't want to say that, you know, oh, they don't care, but you know, there's still a vet in charge, but we get more opportunities to say, Hey, I want to do this treatment plan. Is this okay? And then the, whoever, whatever vet is in charge can you know, say, yep, that's okay. And then it's, you know, honestly with wildlife rehab, by the time they come to us, they're usually really sick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we get to practice. It's looking at a lot of different things, looking at x-rays. So there is a little bit of more wiggle room with wildlife, but depends on the species. If it's something that's really fragile, it's like, you know, only the main doctor and and techs are touching it. Nobody else can touch it.
0: Yeah. But that makes sense. There'd be no, there'd be less pressure with the wildlife. And then you, yeah, like you said, you can try things that you wouldn't necessarily try on a pet. So as as far as the wildlife rehab goes in in the Australia clinic, for example, are those like animals that were hit by a car or what what sort of animals are for the most part fulfilling that uh, section Mm -hmm. of the clinic?
1: yeah there was a little bit of everything you know some of them they had a bunch of bearded dragons that were um you know really tame so it was kind of unclear that you know were they pets that people lost or released or were they just you know bearded dragons are kind of chill in general um but we you know they'd get some that were you know certainly hit by cars picked up by people's cats um somebody found it somewhere it shouldn't be Uh, Definitely a lot of the birds would come in injured, um, you know, and I I know that they were having some issues with um, Nidovirus. And so we'd get, you know, some of the really sick, especially the blueies were coming in really sick and kind of just people would find them and say, hey, this isn't right. I just found this lizard sitting on my porch and it didn't move. So they bring it in. Mm
0: And that's the other thing that people maybe don't realize or don't think about is that vets often do a lot of that as well. I don't know where the money comes from for that sort of treatment. Is that some from the clinic or is the government sort of fund some of that wildlife rehab?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'm sure it varies. Uh, My clinic sees wildlife and we basically have kind of free reign to do what we need to do. You know, we we wouldn't be able to necessarily say, hey, can we just, you know, front $10,000 to do surgery on this, this random turtle, but basically we just we can do what we need to do and the funds do kind of just come back from the clinic we generally mm. don't get any kind of funding from outside sources so we we do kind of eat the cost but at least for you know my clinic we we see a decent amount during the summer but it's not a wildlife specific clinic whereas you know those will have more donations and, and things like that
0: right yeah th- that reminds me of what i was going to say a few minutes ago when i forgot is uh, that's sort of the kryptonite of animal people is that everybody is so compassionate towards animals. It's very tough to turn that off, right? I see this happen all the time with people who work in rescues or or even have a rescue in their own, like run their own sort of reptile rescue, for example. It's just, they can so quickly become overwhelmed with trying to save everything. And I'm sure Vets is the same way. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. you, you will be tempted to cut corners cost-wise or, or do extra work or do you know, work longer hours because you have this animal sitting there and you just feel so guilty not, and it's probably bad for the mental health side, but it, it, I see it all the time with, especially with animal people. So I'm not sure if you, if you can relate to that.
1: For sure. For sure. Yeah, we definitely, the the hard ones are where, you know, it's the animal needs, whether it's a treatment or a surgery and it's expensive, the owner can't afford it. And so, you know, we do what we can, we try to make a payment plan, we try and cut costs, and then it doesn't go the way we hoped. And then the owner gets mad. And so now they've lost an animal and they're mad at us. And we're really not getting paid for the work we did. So it's just a bad situation all around. And we're also suckers. We take home so many animals mm-hmm. that we probably shouldn't. Um, yeah, I definitely was not planning on getting a sugar glider or my little house gecko that was found. Someone drove up from Texas and I think found them in their car and brought them to us and they're invasive and they're not going to survive in Indiana. So I just took them home and that's how I got them. And I was not planning that at all.
0: So, so with the sugar glider, was that somebody's pet that was brought in and then they left there or how did that end up in your home?
1: Yeah, they actually, it was a client that called and was looking to rehome them. They didn't feel that they had the time uh, that, you know, they required because they're such intense animals. And um, my coworkers kind of know that I'm a sucker. And they kind of immediately, I had like three of them coming up to me like, hey, you want a sugar glider? You want a sugar glider? And finally, I was like, fine, I'll take the sugar glider. And So now I've got him too.
0: I want to spend a couple minutes on sugar gliders because you're not the, I, I mean, I've seen them. I know what they are, obviously, the small mammals, but I, you're not the first person to say that they're quite intense pets and that they're not the best pets, really, because a lot of people get them because they're so cute and they think that they can have, but there's a lot of work that goes into them. So what what is challenging about caring for them?
1: Yeah, yeah, they're definitely, I definitely do not recommend them as pets. They are very challenging. You know, one thing is their diet is, we really don't even have a great understanding of it in the wild. It varies seasonally. They eat, they're, they're true omnivores. I mean, they eat so many different things, nectar, pollen, vegetation, insects, I mean, you name it. Um, and so trying to replicate that in captivity is really challenging. So we see a lot of nutritional issues with these guys. I mean, you want to talk about metabolic bone disease. These guys are, are almost as bad as the reptiles for it um they are also very social they're very active at night um so if you a lot of people don't realize that so they they get one and then they have this sugar glider that's pulling its hair out because it's not getting enough attention and it's keeping them up at night because they're nocturnal Uh, so they just they really need a lot of enrichment they need a really specific diet they need a lot of attention Um, my guy is not as social as most sugar gliders i know that He has been bounced around a bit and, um, you know, I offer him to come and hang out with me and he's, they're not always the friendliest I'll say. And (laughs) he tolerates me and that's probably about as good as we're going to get.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely quite a few species that float around in the specialty pet domain that are probably Mm -hmm. not the best pets and, and they should really be kept for the zoos in the wild. But I wanted to jump back to, you were saying with the with the conferences, with the vet conferences. Could you sort of paint an image of what that looks like? Because you know, I assume there are reptile sort of private collector conferences that get put on all the time. These people come in and do chats and do you know talks on a species and whatnot. Is it similar to that?
1: Yeah, yeah. They're, you know, if you're like me, where honestly, I think most vets probably are, we're a bunch of nerds. We love learning yeah. about animals. So they're honestly really fun because you get to pick this conference at like, I I definitely struggle with paying attention to things and learning about things if I'm not super interested in it. I remember struggling with cardiology and then I went to a conference and learned about the same concept in ferrets. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so interesting now. <laughs> yeah. So you get to go and kind of learn about what you're interested in. And it varies from, you know, there's some at that clubs, you know, student clubs put on that are a weekend and there's two tracks, there's like aquatics and reptiles. And then it varies all the way to actually this month, there's the big exotics conference is exotics con. And it's like almost a week long. There's like five different, they call them tracks, but it's basically like, how they divide, you know, reptile, um, bird, small mammal, tech, other stuff. And you go to those lectures and they're put on by people that have been doing research or are specialists. Um, sometimes it's case reports. A lot of times they have hands-on labs, which are a really good way to learn techniques. I know that Con has um, a reptile ultrasound lab that I was definitely eyeing, um, but it can even be, you know, for students, it can be exotics handling 101 so it's really variable
0: hmm. yeah that sounds actually like a lot of fun and i can see why that would really draw you towards working with reptiles as a career so so let's jump back to the that myth that we, we kind of mentioned earlier but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get deeper into it now with that you know you, especially on facebook you see this all the time like don't don't waste your time taking your reptile to the vet like you know sprinkle essential oils on it it'll be fine. You don't exactly see that but sometimes you do. Yeah. But anyway, there, there is that that sort of general meme that floats around through the reptile community. I think it's getting a little bit better but we still see it quite often where people think that vets really don't know anything. So, mm-hmm. as far as you're concerned, where do you think that myth came from? What 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 caused that myth to to exist?
1: Yeah, you know, it's I this is definitely just kind of my opinion. I don't know for sure. I think it there's probably a combination of things. You know, one is we are still learning a lot about reptile medicine. I mean, if you look at, if you wrote a book about reptile medicine, which people have, you've got, you can probably just have a book. Whereas if you write a book about, you know, dog medicine, I mean, you're gonna fill a room with it. There's just so much more that we know about other species And I think part of that is, you know, public perception, reptiles just aren't as valued. And, you know, I'm sure people that are in herpetology and trying to get grants, it's the same thing with if you're in vet med and trying to get, you know, your research done on your reptiles. I think there's just not as much, there are not as many resources there. There's also, I mean, I would say there's probably more vets that either like or at least tolerate reptiles than the general public, but it's still not a super high amount. I mean, I have classmates that were terrified of snakes. I was denied housing with some other students because I had a snake. So there's just, you know, there's not as much interest. I think I'm, you know, I certainly have classmates that will see reptiles, but I was the only one in my class that had a specific interest in specializing reptile medicine. Whereas, you know, you have how many dozen people that want to be surgeons or cardiologists or things like that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody listening to this podcast will be able to relate to that experience of being the kind of the weirdo that likes reptiles. Yeah. I think <laughs> reptiles are becoming more popular, which is helping that. But what are some of the mistakes that you've, you've seen vets make? Because obviously you're a, a new grad as well. So you kind of have that as a fresh eyes too, because you are, you're part of the hobby. So you would have had, it wasn't that long ago where you weren't a vet and you were able to see maybe some of the mistakes from uh, sort of a keeper point of view. So what, what are some of the reptile related mistakes that you see vets make?
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting because I think for for those of us that are interested in reptile medicine, most of us were keepers first. Like I think there is a difference between a reptile vet and a vet that sees reptiles. I mean, even if we're not talking being a specialist, there's definitely a difference in you know interest and knowledge between those of us that go out of our way to to learn about them because it's just not profitable to do it just because. So I definitely have seen, I mean, I've seen the horror stories on Facebook pages where people post like, oh, my vet gave me this care guide and it says like snakes, temperature, and it's just like a random range for every snake species. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, <laughs> you know, and you you hear the horror stories of, of stuff like that, or, you know, I've seen like, oh, okay, my vet didn't know what species this was or wasn't comfortable handling it. So I think that honestly, some of the mistakes that I see most commonly from colleagues are just not being up to date on some of the most recent information, which honestly, isn't that different from keepers. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, seeing some outdated things recommended in terms of housing, uh, lighting, enrichment, things like that are pretty common. Medicine wise, the nice thing is that even if you're not necessarily the most confident with reptiles, we have a we have a really good resource in our colleagues and, um, you know, online forums and things. And we have our own Facebook groups where we post cases and there will be specialists. It's not the same as, you know, a specialist consult, but there will be a reptile specialist that can come on and Mm -hmm. say, this is what I think. And so you're functionally talking to a specialist for free on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of the nice thing, but I definitely think husbandry really vets and keepers are not so different that there's there's a spectrum of you know keeping in the the tiny tubs to the grand enriched enclosures as well on our part
0: yeah, there's almost like two two columns there's the husbandry side and then there's the medicine side, mm-hmm. which are are sort of not related like i I've seen sometimes you'll see vets who will see reptiles like you say they're not a reptile vet but they see reptiles so they'll apply the same medicine tactics that they use on mammals for example and sometimes that can go haywire I've seen mm-hmm. antibiotics gets pre- prescribed to an animal that right. you know, ends up killing the snake for example just because the vet didn't know but they were just you know pulling off of their own information mm-hmm. from the guinea pig they've treated in the past or whatever so there's there's that and of course as like you said it was only a couple of Pretty thick textbooks, but not massive amount of information for reptile medicine. So as we progress into the future, that should become more clear for everybody. Uh, and then, but then the column, the other column, the husbandry side. It, that that is that's sort of an interesting side to reptiles. Is I'm trying to think like with dogs and cats, you don't focus on the husbandry as much because it's it's more you know you, you focus on diet and exercise. But other than that, there's not much to it. Like with reptiles, there's just so many more layers that the vet should really try to stay on top of.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's, that's totally true. And I, I definitely think there's a lot more overlap between husbandry and medicine than a lot of people realize Hmm. a lot of the mistakes, or I guess a lot of the illnesses I see are because of husbandry mistakes. And I mean, I certainly have to prescribe out medications, but it's kind of, I don't want to say shocking, but interesting how often it's just, hey, change this, change that, okay, we can prescribe this antibiotic to get them through this disease course, and then after that, we've made these husbandry changes, and the issue does not keep coming back, so I think that, you know, people I've seen, you know, I've seen them say, like, oh, trust your vet for medicine, not husbandry, and then I know that, you know, not everyone's a nerd like me that makes care guides for fun, Um, so I know (laughs) that, yeah, that that was my COVID project. Um, so hey, I know that that's a great that, that's,
0: COVID project.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I know that you know certainly if you're not interested in that, that's a kind of an undertaking. So you go and you find, you know the one care guide that you know your boss made ten years ago, and and so I I totally understand why keepers get frustrated, and sometimes I get frustrated with the things that I see, but um, I think that there's a lot more overlap than people realize, and getting keepers and vets to kind of <laughs> work together and share their knowledge with, is ultimately going to help everyone, including the animals.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's almost like that bridge needs to be... Because we absolutely need vets to maintain a healthy herpetoculture. It just needs to be there. And and we need them and they need us. And the, the great thing about the keepers is they're constantly pushing the husbandry mm-hmm. boundaries. We're learning what, how, what it means to take care of something where maybe the vets can you know, take the medicine and fold that into the husbandry much better than the average keeper. I mean, we don't know anything about medicine. What are some of the common mistakes or common illnesses that you see being brought into the clinic?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So definitely metabolic bone disease, you know, nutritional, secondary hyperparathyroidism is still very common to, you know, different degrees. Sometimes, you know, I have a reptile present that we call it ADR, ain't doing right. Um, You know, they're, they're not eating as much, they're not as active. And we find that, you know, whoops, they're not getting the correct calcium supplement. The UV hasn't been changed in a year and a half. And then sometimes they come in where they are totally deformed. I mean, looks like some kind of body horror awfulness, you know, their bones are soft and it's still so common, even if it's not necessarily to the point where they're, you know, bending in ways they shouldn't be that we find just, okay, well, we took x-rays and their bone density is actually kind of decreased. And I think that's kind of a really common underlying issue that I see is improper, you know, either calcium supplementation or, you know, vitamin D, I guess, um, utilization from improper lighting.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a vet, that must get incredibly tiresome to see that and and, and it's the community that needs to take responsibility for that like it's it's just so strange that that still happens that somebody will bring in a reptile and i bet those a lot of times the owners have no idea what's going on they just know something's up like the leg is bent it's weird we've got some bowed legs or something but they've probably never even heard of metabolic bone disease in a lot of cases it's like what's happening why is there such a big gap there
1: right and it seems like what i find interesting is a lot of people you know i'll say oh have you heard of this before and they'll say oh i you know i googled it and i was wondering if that's what it was or People will get, you know, upset, not at me, but like, why didn't the pet store tell me, you know, why, why didn't I know this? And that's, you know, understandable that you, you know, you buy these kits from the pet store and they tell you, yep, this is what you need. And so then when they come in six months later and they've got this reptile, that's really sick. And it's like, well, they told me this was all I needed. So I totally understand why they get upset about that. Um, But it's it's I get it it's tough you know I made mistakes with my bearded dragon and I you know I wish I could go back and fix it but I, I I don't know why the they're. I think pet stores are getting a little bit better I know you you had a guest a while ago that kind of talked about things and certainly I kind of listen to what people are saying at the pet stores and sometimes I hear things that I'm like oh thank god they're recommending that and other times it's like why are you telling them to put that chameleon in there so. yeah
0: yeah yeah, it's a uh, it uh, I like I said I think that gap is shrinking but it is still kind of a uh, it, it is a bit strange and and as far as you you go how do you stay on sort of I guess the cutting edge of husbandry what what do you do to make sure you're maintaining that your sort of foot in that domain
1: Yeah, I try to read papers. Um I honestly I feel like my jump into evidence-based keeping and I'm certainly not perfect. I'm not going to say oh my gosh, my reptiles have the most perfect husbandry ever. But a lot of it was kind of by random chance. I think I started following someone on like Tumblr that was talking about like, well, actually ball pythons need UV and they need these larger spaces. And I was like, that's, that's weird. I've never heard that. And then that kind of just got into, oh, well, this paper does say this. And oh, this Facebook group does have all these resources. And um, I try now, I know the advancing herpetological husbandry page is really good about posting stuff. Um, I try to keep up on it with um, the uh, ARAV, the Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians page. A lot of times they'll post new research um, or even just kind of in on some of the cases they're talking about to see, okay, what are the experts recommending? And just honestly trying to, I I probably see what a lot of the keepers see. Um, You know, I don't know if we necessarily have special access to any husbandry papers. I mean, when I was in school, I would definitely like download them and save them because, you know, we got them for free. Mm -hmm. But I think I probably see a lot of what, you know, the rest of the reptile community sees. And I just try to stay on top of the species that, you know, I know I see a lot of like the ball pythons, the corn snakes, the beardies, the leopard geckos, etc. cetera.
0: Yeah, I guess it's just a matter of interacting with the hobby as much as possible on a weekly basis, type thing. And is there ways that so let's say hypothetically you have a patient come in, they have a, a leopard gecko that has metabolic bone disease. So you go through the treatment, and let's just say you know maybe the gecko is going to be okay, maybe not. But but really, what what I want to ask is about the actual the owners. What do you do in that situation? Do you give them resources and say go here for information, or or you said you had done some care guides as well. So how are you helping the the, the actual humans in that situation.
1: Right. Yeah. So I did end up making my own care guides. I, I just wasn't, you know, I, I guess satisfied with a lot of the ones I was finding because for me, I'm, I get pretty detail oriented about these things. And so, you know, I'd find this guide that says, um, this lizard needs UV. Okay. How much, where do I put it? And when do I change it? And so I ended up making my own that they're very long and probably more detailed than most people care, but I can kind of highlight, okay, you need to change this bulb every six months. Um, you know, you want a calcium powder that is calcium carbonate based. You want to make sure there's no phosphorus in it. I can highlight that, you know, you want to make sure you're feeding a, you know, a a varied diet and that you're gut loading. Usually it's, Hey, back off the mealworms. Um, (laughs) And that way I can, I I like having something that I can just hand them and there's certainly places I'll send them, you know, there's, I, I think Reptifiles has some great information and it's really well laid out. So if they, if it's a species that they have on there, I'll say, Hey, go look at this. If you're, for me, a visual person, I really like the way that their guides are set up or, you know, certain Facebook pages that, you know, you can talk to keepers on here. If you don't feel comfortable, you know, asking your vet, these pages are ones that, the keepers are knowledgeable and you can say like, Hey, I'm working on my setup. What do you think? Um, You know, so I I definitely have a collection of of resources and definitely every time you have a a guest, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to write that one down. You know, the chameleon central is like, I'm definitely going to make a note of that one. So I I try and do a combination because I know sometimes my giant blocks of text are too much. So if I can send them to a page that I trust, that's a little more user-friendly sometimes I feel like they're a little more Willing to get involved,
0: yeah. Well, that that's the tough part is that you want to provide them with a really thorough care guide, but then it's there's that balance where if you provide them with too much information, they may not even crack mm-hmm. crack the book, right? They might go, "Well, I don't, I can't even read all that. It's just too much." Yeah. But then you don't want to give them the skeleton of the you know snake needs UV slash here's the temperature range between sixty and ninety degrees. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we had to find that balance between. And I think if you give them something in between, it will make them interested and then grab pull them in towards the detailed care guides, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you have someone that's interested and wants to do a good job caring, they will eventually want to have all that information, but we, uh, you also can't scare them away with too much right. information.
1: Yeah. And I, I found that, you know, kind of, you can't tell I'm a talker. <laughs> so kind yeah. of talking to them about these are the main points that I have and, you know, I can we're still curbside so i can i swear i can hear their their brain spinning like oh my gosh am i going to rec-, rec or uh, remember this so i'll say it and then i'll say i know that this is a lot i'm telling it to you out loud and then i'm going to highlight it on a care guide because i find that helps people remember you know we have a saying that owners hear like 10 of what we tell them i mean they, I'm, it's overwhelming we're using a lot of jargon their animals sick they're scared So I find that if I can do that and then I hand them this, you know, 10 page monstrosity where at least I've highlighted the diet section, you know, a little blurb on UV and if they can at least read that, they're going to be better off. And then if they find, you know, this is really interesting and they keep reading great. Now they've learned about, you know, infrared and different types of bulbs to use. And and that's awesome. And that's just a bonus.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think that's a really great way of doing it. That makes sense what are some of the strangest things you've seen get brought into the clinic as far as disease and illness goes?
1: Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know if I've seen anything super strange other than one of my favorites is always help. My reptile is stuck in this hide. Mm, <laughs> I've classic. had, um, I had a little baby carpet Python stuck in like a little hat from star Wars. And that one was funny. Cause they're like, Oh, he won't come out. And I kind of just poked at him and he came right out and, um, those are always you, you feel like a we, we say that you feel like a firefighter. You're like oh yeah, I got your gecko out of this stuck out of this hide, and so there those are a little bit unusual just because they're not common, um, but they're you know kind of easy fixes. I feel like a lot of what we see is a lot of the same. Um, unfortunately, we are seeing more you know the the ball pythons with respiratory disease, and a lot of them you know I'm recommending tests for nidovirus, and they're coming back positive. So that's mm-hmm. one thing that's definitely scary that we're seeing more of. Um, I saw a king snake that had eaten his tail and was starting to digest himself.
0: Oh my that's gosh.
1: Probably, that's probably the weirdest one. <laughs> um, as far as I know, he's doing great, but he had swallowed about probably two thirds of his own body. It was, it was pretty crazy.
0: So he must've been at that for a while for it to actually start breaking down. Cause I mean, you see King snakes doing that mm-hmm. once in a while. They're, they're so crazy. They'll do that, but they might, he must've had his tail in his stomach for yeah. a little bit of time.
1: Yeah. I think also it was just so far down, you know, cause he, like when I we kept, it was like a, like one of those magicians ribbons. We just kept pulling the tail out and it's like, okay, he has to be done. And it just kept going.
0: <sighs> King snakes are crazy. So how big of a, of an issue do you think Nido is? Because I think that especially in the States, I, I, I shouldn't say, especially in the States, but I think because you guys have said it on the show before, it's Mm -hmm. a lot easier to ship animals back and forth. The weather is more cooperative for the most part. And there's just way more people keeping reptiles. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, there's just less. So maybe we don't have as much of an issue, but do you see that as a pretty serious thing?
1: Yeah. It's funny. I was actually talking about this last night with um, a ball python breeder that came in. I, I think that it's bigger than we realize, just because people aren't testing and they're not necessarily quarantining. So I would be willing to bet we have a lot more positive animals than we realize, and that some of these animals that are having chronic issues are probably going to come back positive. Mm. Um, You know, at this point, it's getting better that people will bring their animals to us when they're sick, but it's, there's still kind of a I guess almost a stigma of even when I talk to friends or family, I'm like, yeah, I saw this really cool snake. And they're like, someone brought your, brought a snake for a checkup. And Mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot of people that are hesitant. So I think it's probably underdiagnosed.
0: Yeah, there's just the old bump up the humidity and bump up the heat and the clear up the RI just by, by yeah. doing that. Although, so maybe now as you're saying that, maybe that's one positive of this crazy morph craze is that you have someone with a five thousand dollars snake that has some bubbling and they're like, I got to bring it into the the vet. We we have to get this looked at. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's you know one one positive there. And so, is it what about managing nidovirus? Because you know you have asymptomatic animals. Is there anything? So when you have a positive animal, what, what do you recommend to the owner?
1: It depends if it's, you know, a pet or a breeder animal. A lot of times if we're dealing with, you know, a large-scale breeder, euthanasia is kind of the best option um, because if you're exposing that snake to other snakes and breeding it and potentially contaminating, I mean, you could mm-hmm. really get your whole collection sick. Whereas if it's somebody that has a ball python and this is their pet, it's their buddy, you know, we we can sometimes manage it. I mean, ultimately... I don't know if I've had a case that, you know, long-term did well, but it's also, I'm also a fairly new grad. So I think it's, it's hard to tell at this point long-term, but I've definitely had, you know, um, even not just NIDO, but like crypto and, and leopard geckos, something that long-term is not a great prognosis, but it's their pet. So if we can manage it and help the symptoms and talk about, you know, biosecurity, if you get another animal, then as long as that animal's not suffering, they can live as, as a pet for, you know, some amount of time. It definitely varies, Mm -hmm. but some of them, especially with NIDO, they get so sick. We do end up recommending euthanasia. Anytime something can't breathe and we can't get it to breathe. I'm, that's kind of a hard line for me because that is so stressful on the animal that I, I often do recommend euthanasia for those.
0: Yeah, exactly. So if you have something that's more asymptomatic on both the nido and crypto side, what are some ways you guys manage it? Well, do is there medications or is it just general biosecurity and good husbandry?
1: Yeah, definitely those are big. Uh there's, you know, I I it's funny, I had to like a I feel like things come in waves. I had a run of, you know, little sick crypto geckos and there's definitely different, you know, treatments out there that aren't necessarily proven 100%, um, but might work uh, for, you know, our our respiratory infections, you know, do we manage it with antibiotics as needed? Do we nebulize? Um, But certainly husbandry is a big one, making sure they're eating. Um, You know, sometimes if we have to do a little support feeding with, with a nutritional supplement to get them just kind of feeling good again, you'd be surprised how much that can kind of make them feel better and get them going. So a lot of it really is support and then just treating symptoms as they come. You know, if we have, you know, now this this gecko just has really bad diarrhea, can we get that to kind of settle down? Or sometimes we can't, but, and that's what I tell owners is this is, this is all management. It's not a cure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's the unfortunate thing about some of those diseases or some of those uh, the pathogens have you, what are some of the most interesting species you've had? I'm sure most, for the most part, you've had the the classics, the leopard geckos, uh, corn Mm -hmm. snakes, ball pythons, and bearded dragons and whatnot. But since you did some time in Australia and you've Mm -hmm. kind of floated around, are there any that kind of rank at the top as something that's been really fascinating?
1: Gosh, yeah. You know, I feel like 90% of what we see is bearded dragons, which is great. I love bearded dragons, but, you know, we don't necessarily see, um, I want to say a while ago, it wasn't me, but my colleague had, it was some kind of rear fang colubrid that I can't remember what it was. Um, Anytime we have, I love Euromastics, So anytime we get those, I get really excited. Um, I get really excited about tegus. I honestly, I get excited when we have any reptiles, but (laughs) I don't know if I've seen anything super, you know, super weird or unique. I mean, when I was in Australia, I, I was like, Oh my gosh, carpet pythons, Simpson pythons. And you know, those are all like, yeah, these are super normal here, but I'm like, they're so cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this weekend coming up for for us, not for the listeners, mm-hmm. I'm releasing an episode about your mastic. So I'm sure you'll enjoy that one. Yeah. It, it made me like really want to buy one myself because they're such fascinating little creatures. But uh, yeah, I know that, you know, most of the, the world is the the classics, which is okay because they're a little hardier and, and whatnot. So I, I had a couple of questions from my patrons that I, I was hoping that we could we could chat about as well. The first one is, is annual checkups, just discussing annual checkups. I think we as reptile keepers are pretty bad at this. And for the most part, many of us don't do annual checkups. Even me, I've, I've, I've never really, I've had them see the vet, but it's not something that I've practiced on a consistent basis. So what are your thoughts on, on that? Is this something that should definitely be implemented?
1: Yeah, I think it it does depend on the species. You know, we're like if we're talking about amphibians, especially, I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a great yes or no answer um, because that's, that can be really stressful on them to handle. And then there's the risks of that, come with handling them. You want you know, you want to have your gloves on, but if we're talking something like, you know, 90% of the, the pet reptiles out there, the beardies, the leopard geckos, the ball pythons, the corn snakes. Absolutely. I think that there's definitely a couple of advantages. You know, one is if it's a species that it's appropriate to get blood on and do annual blood work. Um, having baseline blood work is so helpful. We actually at my clinic, one of the other doctors had a, it was a bird that had regular blood work. And the only reason we found something wrong was because something was different from the rest of the blood work from years. It was still normal on the blood work, but it was very unusual. And they ended up finding some pretty significant things in this bird. And I think with, you know, species like reptiles that uh, the, you know, definitely reference ranges aren't as good, especially if you have a weird species. I mean, if you bring in like, I don't know, your eastern indigo or something, I don't think we have reference ranges for that species. So if you can get baseline blood work, if something happens, we at least have a normal to compare it to. Same with, um, you know, doing a physical You know, I I think that, you know, keepers that maybe handle their animals every day might notice if there's lumps or things, but a lot of times people don't. And we find something and we go, you know, have you noticed this? And someone, you know, will say, oh, my gosh, no, I haven't. And then, of course, just being able to talk about husbandry, which I know kind of, you know, comes back around to the, oh, vets don't know anything about husbandry, but the amount of, you know, I guess mistakes that I catch that are very common I at least can tell them about it, whether or not they follow through that's on them. But being able to discuss that early is so much better than, hey, make sure you get UV for your gecko now, rather than, you know, a year in the future when, oh my gosh, this gecko is, you know, irreversibly sick and with, you know, everything and just isn't doing well.
0: Well, I think that goes back to communicating with both sides. Even if you are a very advanced keeper and you're you know, incredibly knowledgeable on this one species that maybe the vet has no, and maybe never seen this Mm -hmm. particular species before, bringing it in for an annual checkup and then even having a husbandry discussion helps the vet in that scenario, right? Then you are actually being a resource husbandry-wise to the vet, and then they have that as, as new information for themselves. So even if you are an advanced keeper and you know, you know, in quotes, everything that there is to know, you can still add a lot to herpetoculture in general by doing that, process and having those conversations with the vets and while simultaneously getting the animals checked up.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I think that, you know, sometimes vets and keepers butt heads, which is unfortunate because a lot of us are both, like I kind of said earlier, those of us that are really serious about reptile medicine, we're, I'd say probably most or all of us are reptile keepers too, and probably were before we were vets. And so it just, you know, it always kind of, I guess, it's frustrating and kind of sad that there's so much just headbutting when really we all want the same thing. We want our animals to be healthy, and there is a lot of you know a lot that we can learn. I mean, the husbandry stuff that I learned, I honestly I learned from other keepers, and, and certainly picked up things from vets as well. But you know, I, I think that there's just there's so much there that I wish everyone could just kind of get over this, you know, kind of weird, almost rivalry that, well, no, you don't take your animal to the vet, treat it home or, oh my gosh, keepers never listen. And it's just unfortunate because I think we do have a lot to learn from each other.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think it would be cool if something like that vet conference that you talked about, if, they, if there would be something like that where yeah. keepers could attend as well. Obviously, they wouldn't need to attend the specific medicine stuff, but I think it would be cool to unite both worlds in in, in a way where everybody's learning. Like you said, everybody's pretty much everybody's nerds at this point, so we just <laughs> want to be sharing information. Yeah. Do you ever do home visits or anything like that? Because some people have these big collections, and you know it's much easier for the vet to come to them and just pay the bill that way. Do you ever do that, or is that something that uh, anyone in your clinic does?
1: So pre COVID, yes, um, mm, I have done about
0: COVID somehow. Yeah,
1: I've only <laughs> done one home visit since COVID and it was for, um, a coyote, but, um, yeah. So we, we see all sorts of interesting things, but that is something that actually I'm really interested in. Um, I've been talking to my boss about getting hot snake trained because I would love to be able to do some work with venomous snakes. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not necessarily jumping into, Hey, let me hold your gaboon viper, but if I could at least like have a general idea on how to safely work with them, that would open up, you know, potentially, more opportunities for, for sick animals that otherwise can't get care. And I think that, you know, with animals like that or with large collections, home visits are, and doing kind of almost a herd health approach are a really good way to do it because I, I wish that was more common because if you have a vet come in, look over your collection like we do with, um, you know, honestly, even almost like we do with farm animals or, Um, you know, facilities that have, you know, commercial facilities, and we can at least say, okay, these animals look healthy. Um, Your husbandry looks good. Now we have a client-doctor relationship. And when someone calls and says, hey, I have my 200 snake collection and this many have these signs, cool. Now we have a relationship that legally I can dispense medications. I can give advice. Whereas otherwise, if someone calls out of the blue and says, I have 200 Snakes and they're sick. I literally can't do anything unless I see the animal,
0: right? So, so to make it a legal transaction, we'll say you actually have to Mm -hmm. see that animal in person, or else nothing can happen.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we we cannot legally, or honestly, practically, um, we we can't give advice for an animal we haven't examined. And it now that I've been practicing for a while, and I realize how many things can sound like oh, slam dunk, it's this, and then the animal comes in, and you're like oh no, there is something else going on. I wouldn't even want to make a diagnosis without seeing an animal, even if I could, because that just leads to misdiagnosing something and not a good way to go.
0: Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think the home visit would be a lot, very appealing to many people because you also save the stress from the animal. Like, for example, if you have very flighty geckos, like even my day gecko, I feel like if I, you know, she's, she's very nervous and doesn't like to be handled, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if, if you're somebody that has a large collection of animals like that, it'd be so much easier and less stress for the keeper too. Like there's nothing worse than trying to catch fast day geckos. It's horrible. It would take you all day to be able to go to the vet. So that would make everything a lot simpler and more relaxed for the animals.
1: For sure. And that's, that's totally, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, when I just had my ball python and I was a student, I did my yearly wellness visits, but you know, now like my red-eyed crocodile skink, I would never do that to him. That would be so stressful. So it's, that's, you know, a really important point is some animals just are too stressed out by handling and, you know, and examine things. And we don't want the exam to be something that is harmful for them.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a sort of an animal by animal situation. Another question that I had that was, I think, interesting is snake supplementation. And this is something that no we don't really talk about. You don't hear a lot about. Obviously, we hear supplementation on all the other, you know, especially with, with geckos and lizards and whatnot, when you're supplementing with powder and everything. But I think the general theme is that if the animal is eating a whole prey diet, you don't necessarily need to supplement because they're getting everything with the, the whole animal. Mm-hmm. But if we're feeding the same thing, for their whole life. They're bound to be missing something, I'm sure, and who knows, I think as snake keepers we often forget that the rats that we feed are also in some sort of captive situation, and who knows what the guy's feeding them, is he feeding them dog food, are they having access to exercise, are they fat, all these different things, and so what are your thoughts there? Do you think, is there a space for snake supplementation?
1: I think it's a really interesting area. Um, you know, I'd love to see some, you know, kind of studies on breakdowns of the nutritional value of some of these things. And, um, I I don't think it's something we really know. It's definitely an area that I think will probably continue to become, I guess, more relevant because I agree 100%, you know, when we're feeding just these frozen thawed rodents that that's not what they eat in the wild. They don't eat farm-raised rats. They don't eat farm-raised chicks Um, you know, definitely in the meantime, I think dietary variety is one of the best things we can do, but whether or not that covers everything, I don't, I don't know if we know, or if we'll ever know. Um, I know that, you know, this isn't reptiles, but with a lot of other species, there's been at least some data that having, you know, commercial diets when these animals are on it, we don't see the same kind of nutritional issues. So at least, you know, some animals have a commercial diet that can be part of it. Like sugar gliders, there's all sorts of different kibbles and powdered things. And, um, you know, same with ferrets and hedgehogs and all that stuff. And whether or not you're a person that agrees with the commercial diets, it's an interesting point that we don't see the same nutritional issues with animals that are on that. And we don't have that for reptiles. So it's, I think there's certainly more to learn there.
0: Yeah, it is it is interesting especially on this on the snake side. I mean, obviously with like Crested Geckos for example, we do have the powders and whatnot, so they have their whole meal, but but yeah, you 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 do wonder how much they're missing or lacking when you're just feeding them the same thing over. And I don't even know how you would supplement. I know that one of my patrons was saying that he was in contact with with a, a like a a science center that was mm-hmm. was supplementing vitamin D. Now I'm trying to remember how they were actually doing. It. I actually don't know what what they were doing specifically to actually supplement. If it was like being injected into the, right. the prey item or or sprinkled on. Like, have you have you had any uh, experience with anybody doing that with with snake? But I guess besides doing like a carnivore diet situation,
1: I've never had anyone that does that. Uh, it, I was kind of thinking that too, like, how the heck would you even do that? Cause like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think about like my ball python who I try, I usually feed him yellow chicks and I tried to feed him a black and white chick and that was no. So like, if yeah, I had yeah. to put powder or something on it. I don't know how I'd get him to eat it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's, I guess maybe the next domain of, of, of reptile health. Maybe mm-hmm. that will be, we'll start seeing that. Who knows what that will look like as far as yourself goes. Do you have, How much pressure do you have just to try to stay up to date? We already talked about kind of how you stay up to date, but do you, do you feel pressure to make sure you're constantly progressing research wise and, and staying on top of things? Does that make you stressed or is that kind of just part of it?
1: I think I probably stress myself out because I have kind of taken on this role at my clinic of making these care guides and it's something I enjoy doing, but. I mean even with the ones that I put you know hours and hours of research into I found these peer reviewed articles I go back and I look at them and I'm like is that really what I meant to say or "Hmm, I've learned something else since then so you know I want to make sure that I'm not giving outdated information certainly you know partly because it is my job to advise owners but also I feel like I'm definitely putting a little bit extra pressure on myself because I've, I've kind of taken on this role, but I mean, the good part is I enjoy learning about it. So when I see that there's, you know, somebody posts a new article on one of the, the vet pages, I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to go read that. Mm-hmm. So it's, I guess, pros and cons there.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think we hadn't, I know you'd run through kind of what animals you had. I think that was off air. So maybe you could just, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up letting it, you can let everybody know what, what you keep right now as far as reptiles go.
1: Yeah, so I've got my ball python, of course, um, little western hog nose, I've got a leopard gecko, red-eyed crocodile skink, my um, little house gecko, and then um an axolotl. And that's that's it right now. Um the goal is eventually to have a reptile room, but um right now I'm I'm renting in a pretty small house, so I've kind of gotten to capacity with the reptiles.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of where I am as well. Do you have any species that you have? on your want list that you you will get eventually when you do have a place that's a little bit larger
1: i have such a long list i (laughs) i really like Aki monitors that's like top of my list they just seem like such cool intelligent animals and you know if i won the lottery and could have a giant enclosure i would also get an eastern indigo um Mm. but other than that you know i i honestly don't know if i i have anything super exciting that i want i want a crested gecko gargoyle gecko just all the standard stuff. Honestly, I'm I'm not really a person that focuses on one species. I'm like, I want one of everything. Yeah. Well, it's
0: probably good as a vet too, to have your experience across like several different, different genres and species. Uh, One one thing that I was going to ask as well, that I meant to say earlier, when you're doing, when you're talking about potentially training to work with venomous species, Mm -hmm. is that something that you would just have to go out on your own and look for a course or would the, would your clinic help, help that help you find a, a training course for that? Or how does that work?
1: So I actually found a course through, um, I think it's the the rattlesnake conservancy, and you know it's they have two levels. You know, one is you know basic about venom, um, you know safety things, and then there's another that I think that I think the second part goes more into like tubing and, and handling and things. So I actually I have no idea how I found it. I just randomly came across it and sent it to you know managers, the boss, and I was like, can I do this? And they're looking into it. I think that, you know, insurance is kind of an issue and right. I mean COVID traveling is an issue. And also the other question is, you know, we want to get a couple of our techs and assistance trained. So it's not just me. And then if we had a venomous snake that had to be hospitalized, where do we put it? Do we want to have a locked door so no one else can go in there? So they're willing to help. It's just right now, the practicality of it is, is making it difficult.
0: So, if just say theoretically you went through all that training and you guys had some techs that were also trained, would you guys accept venomous snakes being brought to the clinic, or was that would that only be a, a home-based treat- treatment? Like you said, you know, you might have a locked door and whatnot. Because it almost sounds like you'd have to do quite a lot to the clinic just to make sure you could do that safely too.
1: Right. My kind of vision, I guess, is um, that it would be mostly home visits. And it would only be in clinic for, you know, hospitalization slash emergency situations, just because that's, you know, you don't want to put anyone else in danger and transporting that snake is, you know, certainly can be a big risk, especially, you know, we have a large clinic with people that would not be trained. So ideally, I, I would love to do more of a home visit situation. And that seems to be, you know, from the limited kind of hot snake type you know, medicine training things I've been to at conferences and things that seems to be the way that most vets do it. At least most, most vets do it safely, I should say. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And, and anytime, even it poses a risk to the, to the owner to, Mm -hmm. to bring them in as well, because you're, you're doing an extra step there. So I think that, that probably makes sense as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Love, I really appreciate this conversation. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you wanted to mention before we wrap up?
1: You know, I guess just uh, if you have a concern with your vet, you know, bring it up to us, we want to have a conversation. And if you don't feel like you're clicking, it's okay to go somewhere else. And there aren't necessarily a ton of us that are super into reptile medicine, you might have to drive. If you can find that out before you get an animal you'll be so much better off. So yeah, just we're, we're people, we're animal lovers, you know, talk to us. We, we really would prefer that, honestly.
0: Yeah. And I think another good point to add to that is talk to your reptile community because mm-hmm. quite often somebody in there will know what vet in your area is the one to go to. You know, yeah, typically absolutely. there's a couple in the city and I think actually Reptifiles has a list of vets. So maybe that's something that we can, we could get you on there as well. I'll talk to Mariah because I think, I think she, I, Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but I don't think so. I think she has a list of, of really good reptile vets on her website. And I think we're
1: actually on there. I feel like I remember seeing us. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Good, 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 good. Yeah. So, so that's another resource as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, can you let everybody know if they want to reach out to you and say hi, and I'll put a caveat in, this is not to have free vet service, but if if they did want to reach out and contact you, where would they do that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So my email is just um, catmlove, that's C-A-T-M-L-O-V-E at gmail.com. And yes, please do not ask me for vet advice. I will not respond. But if you have questions about... Um, you know, getting into this career, or if you are a vet student slash pre-vet student and you want to do an externship, um, or if you just want to talk about reptiles, absolutely feel free to email me.
0: Excellent. I will make sure that is in the show notes for everyone as well. Mm -hmm. Dr. Love, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I love this conversation. I think it's always good to try to meld these two worlds together. So I think this conversation did a good job of that. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: All right, that is the end of that episode. Dr. Love, thank you so much for jumping on an episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening to the show and being a guest. That was wonderful. And thank you for providing your email address at the end. Again, I'll put the caveat again in. If you're a listener, that email address is to talk reptiles, to talk about what it's like to be a vet or any questions about going into vet school and so on. Just like Dr. Love said, please don't email her with ailments or issues that you are experiencing with her with your reptiles. It's just she's not able to answer those questions. But again, like she said, if you want to talk reptiles, the email emails there for you to contact her. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I do hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, feel free to share it on Instagram or Facebook, that does always help. If you want to join us on Patreon and be part of the Patreon Zoom chats as well as have early access to episodes, jump over to patreon.com slash Home. And thank you so much to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Again, affiliate links are in the show notes as well as the YouTube description. And if you do make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And this building is rattling right now I feel like I'm yelling I can hardly hear myself think hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm screaming into the microphone but that is it for today guys thank you so much for tuning in I will catch you next Sunday